Welcome to the Bruce Bright Breakdown. My name is Dr. Bruce Bright. I'm a Marine fighter pilot, retired, did uh, 28 years in the Marine Corps. Following that, went to school, got my doctorate in psychology, and now a coach. What we're going to do on the Bruce Bright Breakdown is we're going to break down each guest as they bring in their topic. So we're going to get to the Bruce Bright Breakdown each and every week. I hope you join us. It's going to be fun, exciting, informative, and I think you'll love it. So join us right here on the Bruce Bright Breakdown. Hey guys, welcome to the Bruce Bright Breakdown. I'm excited today. My guest is Melvin Upchurch. He's a uh, he's a longtime friend, and uh, and also you know I've done business with him both ways. He's done business with me. I've done business with him. Uh, I'll just tell you on the outset, I'm a huge fan, so I'm going to be biased on this podcast. But uh, Melvin, thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me, Bruce. I really appreciate this. Uh, I'm going to let Melvin tell a story here in a second. But I'm going to do a brief intro. So Melvin was in the military. He he can tell you what he did there. And then after that, he became interested in real estate. He's got an accounting background. He's got a real estate background, and he's done some fabulous stuff across the board of real estate investing. And I, that's what we're going to learn about today. But it's a fantastic story. By the way, Melvin is hot and heavy in the business today. He's he is still getting after it. So I'm not. We're this is not a story that's over. The story we're in the middle of it. But I want you to see how Melvin got from nothing, and we'll go back until where nothing's at, until where he is today. He's a family man. Got a beautiful family. And a great businessman. So, uh, in any case, in fact, anything that I do real estate, Melvin, if it's residential real estate, I wait. I get Melvin's way in on an effort since I met him. I met him right when I retired out of the military and moved to Birmingham, and uh, that's where Melvin uh, lives now. So, Melvin, if you would, we're going to start by just go back as far as you want to go. Tell us your story. Well, first, let me say I appreciate everything you just said about me. I don't think I could ever live up to that buildup. So I'm just going to do the best I can with it. But I appreciate everything that you just said. Okay. So I'll start with this. I came from very humble beginnings. And everybody, you hear that said a lot of times from people, my my beginnings were humble. But I want to describe my beginnings to you because they formed who I am today. They, they, They still, every day, part of who I am is based on my upbringing my mother and father were in their 40s when I was born. My mom was born in 1918, my dad in 1919. And so they were raised during the Depression in rural Mississippi. And my father was a sharecropper. And so his view of the world would forever be shaped by growing up in the Depression, as well it should be. And when I came along, I was totally unexpected, the last of four children. And my dad had served in World War II. He uh, worked in a factory. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, and and when I say we were poor, I guess we were probably above the poverty level, but to describe our home, uh, we had a, I looked it up recently, because I I looked up a Google picture of it, I wanted to see what the house looked like, it didn't look very good. It's still still standing. It's still standing. Okay. Uh, I'm not that old. But it was a two-bedroom, one-bath house with no central heat and air, no air conditioning, in Mississippi for a family of six uh, with 900 square feet, and that's the house I grew up in. And when you talk about a humble beginning, you know, I was telling this to somebody at one time and he said, well, did you have indoor plumbing? And I said, well, of course I had indoor plumbing. Well, he, he out humbled he me. He, he didn't. didn't. So he, he beat me on that. <laughs> yeah. So I, we had indoor plumbing. Yeah. And my dad, uh, because he'd been a sharecropper, we had this gigantic garden and he was very proud of it. And he'd work all day in the factory. He'd come home and just slave in that garden. And we, we always had food to eat. Right. Or anything like Let me that. ask you a question though about mom and dad. Did they have plumbing? Your mother and father growing up as children? Oh, I'm sure they did. No. I'm sure so you're did. you're a you're a product of the greatest generation. Right. You're a baby boomer. Yes. And that has a lot to do with the story we're about to hear. It does. It okay. does. 
So my father had this great garden and um, we, we live in this tiny home. And, and today I have had the opportunity to see people that live in, in humble circumstances. And I will tell you the dramatic difference between what I have seen and what I experienced when I was growing up. We were poor, but we were proud. And so in our house, you when you say you could eat off the floor, you, you could have eaten off the floor. I didn't know what a dust money was until I was in the Air Force and I had a drill sergeant telling me in some detail what a dust money was. Cleaned up. Yeah, so I'd never seen one before. Mm-hmm. I never knew that a bed could be uh, unmade unless somebody was sleeping in it. Uh, I never saw somebody sleeping in a bed if, if it was daylight. Uh, I didn't know dishes could be in a sink because I never saw dishes in the sink in my life. We got through eating. We washed the dishes. I never knew clothes could hit a floor. I never saw that happen in my life. Uh, clothes were put in the hamper and they were washed and they were folded ironed away. and folded and put back up. Yeah. So that's the that's what I grew up with. The yard was clean. There were no weeds. No weeds in my dad's garden. And, and that's just kind of what I experienced. So being poor has nothing to do with hard work. Nothing at all. Or, or what you want to be or what you can become. Right. And we bought our clothes from the dollar store. You know, but bought cheap clothes, well, I guess durable clothes, but inexpensive clothes. And we wore them until they were too small for us. And my mom was a seamstress and she patched them up until we, until we couldn't wear them anymore. And I never realized that we were not as well off as other people. And, and by the way, my friends were all far better off than we were. I didn't have a friend that didn't have air conditioning. You know, most of them were two income families or the dads weren't working in a factory. And so I did, I did realize we didn't have as much, but it never impacted me until I was 10 years old. And when I was 10 years old, every kid in my class had a banana seat bicycle, except me. And uh, I set, set my dad down and said, look, Dad, I, I'd like to get a, I'd like to have a bicycle. And, the uh, banana seat one. Banana seat bicycle. Yeah. That's everybody. And uh, he said, how much are they? And I said, $35. And he said, there's no way. We, we don't have the money for it, and I'm sorry. And, that, and that's all he said. And um, I went to the Western Auto, and I found the one I wanted. It was a perfect. It's the best bike, and it was $35. And I went back home and opened up my, my little piggy bank and I had $10, at $10, $1 bills. I'd saved from Christmases and birthdays and mm-hmm. whatever. A little short. Yeah. And so I was expected to mow the lawn. I was expected to take out the garbage. And, and I never got an allowance. You know, I'd say, well, you know, the, the Bradys get an allowance on the Brady Bunch. So we're not the Brady Bunch. You don't get an allowance. You're expected to do certain things. Or your family do. You just do it. Yeah. So on my street, this is going to sound strange, but there were three widow ladies on our street. And so I just knocked on everyone on the door and said, is there anything I can do for you? Can I mow your lawn? Can I take out your garbage? Can I clean out your attic? And every one of them. You're 10 years old. I'm 10 years old. Okay. So I do this every day. And, and every one of them had something for me to do. And they'd pay me 50 cents here and 75 cents here. It wasn't a lot of money, but, you know, they, they didn't have a lot of money. Up $35. And so in a few weeks, I had $35. I had it in a paper sack. And I walked the mile to, to the downtown, and I went into Western Auto. Of course, I've been in there every day looking at the bike, and I get, grabbed the guy and I said, well, I'm ready to buy that bike, and I opened up my bag, emptied out the coins and everything that was in there, and he added it up, and uh, he was, he was I could tell he was proud of me, and uh, I, got on the, I took the bike, I remember walking it through the door and getting on that bicycle and riding home, and it was the greatest feeling in the world. I thought, my friends had this feeling every day to ride on a bike, the freedom, and, and it felt amazing. And I got home and I grabbed my sister because she was five years older than me and always teased me. I said, hey, come look at this bike. And she said, that's a nice bike. And she said, whose is it? I said, it's mine. She said, no, it's not. I said, yeah, it's my bike. I bought it. And she went and got mom and dad. And uh, and they, they didn't believe me either. It took, took a while to convince them. No, no, really, I really bought this yeah. bike. And you would think, you know, that that'd be a good moment for my dad to say, I'm so proud of you, son. And you learned a valuable lesson. And his words to me were, you better take care of it. That was it. 
So I, I didn't get a lot of affirmation from my parents. They loved me, but you know, they just kind of had a, that's the way life, they grew up, love, they grew up tough and they expected me to be tough. Yeah. So, well, you know, that, that generation is called tough old birds. Yeah. I mean, for, for a reason. Yeah. Your, your mom and dad lived through some things. We can't imagine what they had to do to make it, to make ends meet. That's right. $35 was a, that's a lot of money in that time frame. It was. Um, and for a 10 year old, you know, to buckle down and go buy that thing, that says a lot about your character. Right. right. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. so from from ten years old. So the story the story started. Right. And at ten years old, you had the intestinal fortitude to go. All right, I got ten bucks and eight twenty five, and my dad ain't gonna give it to me. He might not have had it. Right. But these 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 widows need some things done. I'm gonna go make my money. And so it started. At, here we go. At 10, 10 years old, you're a little bit of an entrepreneur. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So you got a cool bike. Now got, what? Got a cool bike. So I didn't again think about how humble our surroundings were until I was in high school. In high school, all my friends had a car. They had the best clothes, you know, the cool jeans and the khaki pants and the cool shirts. And I didn't have any of that because I couldn't afford it. Couldn't afford Y'all still it. in the same house? Yeah. Still you didn't tell me how many sisters, brothers and sisters were in that house. Two sisters and a brother. So there were okay, four of us. My brother went in the service when I was five. I don't even really remember him being at home. So it was really my sisters and I and okay. my, what I can remember growing right. up. So there were five of us from my recollection in growing that up house. in the house. And so uh, in high school, I, I wanted to have what my friends had. And so I got various jobs, ended up getting a job at a gas station. And the old guy that owned it practically let me run it. And so I worked 40 hours a week uh, going to school. I worked uh, every night. I worked uh, all weekends and I saved up no money. At, at that time, I probably had more discretionary income than my dad did. I was making so much money. But I bought a car. I bought the insurance for it, the gas for it. I bought all my meals. I bought all my clothes. I, mean, I was an independent when I was a junior in high school. I didn't have time to date and time for sports, but I looked as good as every other kid in my class. I wore the same clothes they did. You know, that, that was important that to buying. me. That I was buying. Mm-hmm. It was important to me. And by the time my senior year, I knew that I had to make some hard decisions because I, I couldn't afford to go to college. And uh, my mom had passed away when I was 12, and my father had remarried, kind of the epitome of the evil stepmother. She was in her 50s. She never had kids. She uh, she, she didn't like me. Yeah, like kids. So I... Uh, I knew that I couldn't stay at home. I couldn't go to college. I wouldn't have a home to come back to. I couldn't afford to go to college. My brother had gone in the military and ended up having a very successful career, corporate career. And so I went and met with a recruiter, Air Force recruiter. And he said, well, listen, if we can get you in by December of your senior year, if we can get you in, delayed enlistment, you won't have to go into the summer to boot camp, we can get you in under the old GI Bill benefits which were great. World War II, GI Bill. Mm-hmm. They were going away. That, that window of time, they were going away. And so I had to get my dad signed for me. I was 17, and I didn't think he'd do it, but he did. He signed for me to join. I joined delayed enlistment in December, and of course, I had the spring. I had to finish high school. It was probably one of the most unhappiest times of my life. Unhappy? Unhappy. All of my friends are preparing to go. I'm from Mississippi. They were all preparing to go to Ole Miss and Mississippi State. They had their roommates picked out and did the college they were going to go to and what they were going to do. And all I could think of in my mind is for the rest of my life, I'll be behind my friends. I, you know, I'll go in the service and I'll go to college, but they'll be four years ahead of me then. And, and I'll always be four years behind. They'll always make more money than I will. They'll always have a better career. And that, that's all I could I could think of. I went in the military, went in the Air Force, went to boot camp, went to my tech school, got to my permanent duty station, which was Little Rock, Arkansas. And... Uh, Kind of got acclimated, and you were in the military, so what I'm about to say, I don't mean derogatory against the military, and certainly you were in the Marines, it was different than the Air Force, probably you had some of what I'm about to describe, but once I got in the Air Force, it was a government job, 
And there were people that we called them lifers. Nothing wrong with with being in be me. career military, <laughs> but but the lifers were the ones that had kind of settled. You know, this is it. I got a safe job. I, I'm not, I, you basically can't fire me. They had a mentality to do just enough. I do just enough to get by. I won't do more than enough. I'm not. I'm not interested in advancing. I'm interested in getting a paycheck, doing my job, going home, and enjoying life. And I'll travel if they send me around. But I, I'm not very ambitious. And that was kind of what I saw in the Air Force. And I fell into that crowd. I mean, I thought it's better than my dad. I'm not in a factory. I can do this for 20 or 30 years. Pretty easy life. Not that challenging to me. And I got fat. Uh, I got to where I didn't have any respect for myself. And it, it just wasn't, it, it just didn't feel right. Yeah. To, to I got to jump in for a second. Sure. There, there's a lot of Marines that are listening to this. I promise you. Right. So it is a different world. In the Marine Corps. No doubt. It, yeah. In the Marine Corps, it was not just a job. We were going to combat. Every Marine's a combatant. Right. Uh, we were not overweight. The Marine Corps has a real good program. This way it works. You get fat, they kick you out. I mean, it's automatic. There, you, you should never see an overweight Marine unless she's pregnant. Right. And as soon as she's pregnant, there's a very strict timeline for those young ladies get back into shape. Right. So for me, it was very, very much about served my country, and I went to combat twice. So it was a, a, a bit of a different world. I, I do think the services all have a different character. There's some there's some funny ads out there in TikTok and Facebook where you'll you know you'll see this is what, this is how the Air Force does it, this is how the Navy does it, right. yeah. Right. So the services are different. I'm thankful for all. Of them. We need like I use Air Force tankers exclusively in the right. desert in combat. We need them. They got the big heavy tankers. We don't have them, but I do think there's a difference in the mentality of the different services. So from a Marine standpoint, I mean, it was like the Hotel California. You can join, but you can never leave. Right. Um, and it really very much is a fraternity, and it was all about going to combat. Right, So right. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm painting a picture of the element of the Air Force that I was around. That wouldn't be true of the entire the service. But, but I saw that element, and that's kind of what I fell into. And one day I was in a store, and I saw a book, and I was a prolific reader, always had been, and, and the book was The Power of Positive Thinking. And I read the jacket of it, and I thought, I'll read this book. What will it hurt? Read the book, read it again, underlined it, highlighted passages, and said, I can do that. I, I can be positive. I can envision affirmations and be positive. The book was 25 years old when I read it, mm-hmm. which was you know nearly 50 years ago now. So, uh, But I read it. I'm going to do it. I can do this book. I can, I can be a different person. I immediately began running. I lost 40 pounds. I got down to 155 pounds. And I decided to take my job more seriously. Still active duty. Still active duty. Okay. I was 19, been in two years. And they had this way that you could get an automatic advancement. If you, They called it below the zone. And below the zone, there were 5,500 people on the Little Rock Air Force Base when I was there, 55 military personnel, 5,500 military personnel. And they allowed the enlisted men to go below these, called below the zone. You went before these various boards. And if you, as you passed each board, they eliminated and got it down to one person on the base every year, got an automatic promotion. And so I told my, my supervisor, I want, I want to try for that. We, I, you know, I hadn't been a very good troop. And so he, he didn't think, is going to be a waste of time. And he said, we were in base supply. That was my, that was my specialty. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, they'll never pick anybody from base supply. They're going to pick somebody from flight crews. It's just going to be a waste of your time to do yeah. this. So I want to do it anyway. And so they put my name in, and I asked them what I had to do. And they, there were two things. Current events. They're going to test you on current events. They're going to test you on the Air Force Code of Conduct. It's a thick book. Told you everything you need to know about the Air Force. So it's an interview. Yeah. Of sorts. Yeah. Yeah, they interview you one at a time. And so the first batch was probably 100 guys. And you go in one at a time, and, and the board was a captain and two lieutenants. Okay, and so whatever the first board was, I made it. They 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 pushed me in. And there. how did you prepare for that? 
You just study Carter Vincent. Just study Carter and study that book. I found out that I, I, I'm not that smart, but I have an incredible short-term memory, and I just memorized the book. Anything yeah. if they ask me a question, I can tell them the page I number. That it was <laughs> I got on. it. Yeah. And of course, I had my affirmations and my positive thinking, and right. so I, I prepared, I pictured myself winning when by I went the, in. By the way, you did not grow up in that environment. You said That's your right. mom and dad didn't do positive. Yeah. So Never. Never. You're making this transition. Yeah. yeah no expectations for me whatsoever. So I made it past the first board, and my, my supervisor can't believe it. It's like, they must have been on drugs. Yeah, how did you get past the first board? So I went to the second board, and it, this time it's you know a couple of majors and a captain, and I made it past that board. Eventually made it to the top three. One of these three top people three is, the base. is going to get a promotion. And so the final review board was the base commander's full board colonel, the head of flight operations, who's a lieutenant colonel. And we had a SAC division, Strategic Air Command Division on our base, because we had missiles all over the state of Arkansas. And so the a lieutenant colonel in charge of SAC for our base. Okay. And so went before the board. I was the third one in. The other two guys, one of them was from flight crews and one of them was from strategic air command. So, so my competition was, yeah. they had colonels, lieutenant yep. colonels representing them. I had nobody representing me. And the, the colonel for the base was pilot. And so I'm going in with a strike against me. There you go. And so I'm the last one that interviews and uh, answered all their questions. And base commander says, uh, Airman Upchurch. And I stood up, yes, sir. And he said, I want you to know something, son. You, you're not only the best person that I've ever, that we had today, you're the best person I've ever seen do this. Wow. And uh, he said, we're going to talk about you when you leave, but I'm, I'm pretty sure you're going to get that strike. And he said, if it's up to me, it'll be tomorrow. Wow. And he said, I'd like you to, he said, son, I'd like you to go to college, get a degree, be an officer. We, we need we need men like you. And I don't know what the other two guys were going to vote, but after he said that, they were going to vote with him. So mm-hmm. I knew when I left, I knew I wanted and told my supervisor, I'm pretty sure I won this thing. The next day, they sent word down, you, here's your strike. You're, wow. be, you're being promoted. And uh, How long did that process take from you when you started till you got it? Probably 90 days. Okay. Probably a 90-day different boards that you had to go got before. It. And so at 19, I'd made my strike. I, I, had, I was an e, e, E4, I guess, at that time. And the first sergeant for the company came down and said, my son, we're so proud of you. What can we do for you? And I said, well, every week, every time we have an alert, I have to go down and load planes. <laughs> I'd like to get out of that. Can I do something else for my special duty? He said, yeah, we'll put you on the honor guard. You just have to do military funerals all over the state of Arkansas. So that's what I did my last two years. If, for my alert duty, they right. called. I, that's what I did for my extra job. And uh, I did, at that point, start taking night classes to, to get a degree. And they had a great college there that offered courses to us. It was free for us to go. And... Um, at the same time, all this was going on, a guy from my hometown, a, a wealthy individual, had passed away and left this incredible amount of money for any kid in my county. He actually had five counties, could go to college for free. Wow. And a uh, big grant. Yeah. And I, and I contacted him and said, well, I'm in the military. He said, you qualify. You'll be fine. And so the one school that offered the most money was Millsaps. It's a liberal arts school in Jackson, and nobody would go there. And so they said, you'll go here. We'll pay you to go to school here. And so I applied and they said, son, you're not smart enough to go to school. You don't make, you're just not intelligent enough to even go to this college. But if you'll get some night courses, we'll, we'll take you on probation when you get out of service. So they did. I got a year's worth of college going at night in the Air Force. I, by the way, I took another test because they allowed me to do that. I got my fourth stripe. So I was an E5 when I was 19. Yeah, uh, was, that's what, strong. Yeah. So Went to Millsaps under probation. So you're out of the, mil- out out of the military. military. Out of By the way, Millsaps, Bruce Jr. went to Birmingham Southern. I coach there now. Yeah. And uh, Millsaps is in the conference. Right. So we go there you know, right. twice a year, every year. Right. So I know we know exactly what you're talking about with yeah. Millsaps. 
So I went to Millsaps, decided to major in accounting. I loved math. I was good at accounting. I thought that would be a good good field for me. And I made the dean's list every 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 semester. I graduated at the top of my class and uh, received the top offer coming out of Millsaps College for an accounting grad. Went to work for one of the large firms, KPMG. Uh, took a job in Little Rock because I had to make the most money. I, they offered me more money, and I wanted to make the most money than anybody in my class. And so they they offered me the most money. So I went to Little Rock, started my career in public accounting. And I learned pretty quickly that I was not a good fit for public accounting for, for one reason. Technically, I was good, but to make it to the top, you had to be good at you had to be good at sales. You had to be good at you had to play golf and you had to, 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 to be somebody that could bring in business. And I didn't think I had that personality. Right. Thought I could be good technically, thought I could be good supervising people, thought I could be good from an analyst point of view, but didn't think I'd ever be the guy that would bring in big corporate accounts. And right. so well it let me stop right now because I want to make sure that for those out there that are interested in following this path, remember we started 10 with an entrepreneurial spirit and it was all driven by the banana seat bike. Right. And I, by the way, I remember those. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in that age group. I remember those. And I had one. Yeah. A uh, banana seat bike with the uh, high handlebars. Right. Yeah. The monkey bars. Yeah. Or eight hangers, I think they're called. So we, we did it 10. Then without money, worked full time at this gas station, provided yourself with clothing, automobile, all the things that your friends had, because that was important to you. From there, joined the military uh, because you didn't have an option to go to college. You didn't have any money to go to college. Right. But in the military, you went right to the top by getting a meritorious, we called it a meritorious promotion. But you worked, got this one spot. By the way, I can tell you, that's a big damn deal. I mean, not for listeners out there, I don't know how many you were competing against, but it was a lot, a whole lot of guys and gals competing. So, and to have that comment at the end where this, this colonel goes, hey, just by the way, you're the best guy that's ever you know, come across the board. That says a lot because that guy had been in the military 20-some years. He's seen a lot of you. He's seen a lot of those boards, right? right, and a lot of young airmen. And then, you know, you go from there and you figure out a way to get that degree. And the way you did it was you went and found this grant. Like, there's money up there somewhere. I'm going to go get it. You went and applied. Somehow you got that money. You go to school. By the way, what was the grades like in school and college? What do you mean? You know, what kind of grades did you make? Oh, I graduated summa cum laude, three point nine one average. So, yeah, not too shabby. Yeah, right. Once yeah. so, once again, you focus on what you wanted, and then you put all your heart and soul into it. And you obviously studied, graduated at the top of your class, and now you get the job that you want in this accounting firm. Right. To find out that you're not going to you're not going to do this overall accounting thing because it requires bringing in big deals and you know golfing and all the social life, and that's not what you want to do. Right. So where do you go from there? Had a job offer from an SNL savings loan, and uh, it, it was going to double my income. I thought that was going to be a good career path for me to go. And you may not remember this, but we had the SNL crisis, and not long after I went to work for the SNL, and I advanced in the SNL. I was the head of audit at 26. I became head of their commercial loan operations division at 29. And it was a good job, and I, and I advanced, but like every SNL in the country, it went under. And it went under because they had made long-term loans and they had short-term money to support it. And because they put all their investment in real estate in the oil belt and oil prices sunk and they had a recession in the oil belt and all their real estate holdings were worthless. So for a year, I worked under a, it's called the Resolution Trust Corporation. I worked under them. It was a government entity that took over all the savings and loans. So I worked under them for a year, but knew that that was going to be short-term. So you're 27-ish right now. 30. 30. 30. And I had an opportunity to come to Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I had two job opportunities here. My brother was CEO of a bank in North Alabama, and through his connections, he ended up getting me some some interviews in Birmingham. 
and uh, interviewed with a local bank, and I liked them, and they liked me, and they they hired me to be their controller. No way. I should love the audience. No, I know your brother. Okay. I know him, like him, and work with him. Oh, good. CNS? Yes. Yes. Yeah, CNS yeah. 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 He's retired now. Right. Yeah. So uh, came here to Birmingham, started a, started a banking career, and uh, advanced within that organization, stayed there for seven years, and reached a point in my corporate life that I, I knew that that's not what I wanted to do. It just wasn't. It wasn't who I was supposed to be, and a lot of reasons for that. But I had a good opportunity to leave, and, and I had time to decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. I had some money, not not a lot, but I had some money. And so I started looking at what do I want to do where I can be in business for myself. I didn't want a boss. I didn't want to be in a corporation. I wanted to be independent. And so I began to look at opportunities for that, that would meet that criteria. Now, why do you think, because you were an entrepreneur at 10, right. but you wasn't an entrepreneur between 10 and 30. You was Air Force, accountant, banking. Right. What, why do you think, what bug or what happened when you woke up? Well, you know what? I'm going to work for myself. I got tired of corporate life and the the red tape she had to go through. It was, it was more political than I think I ever dreamed it would be. Mm-hmm. And, and for a lot of reasons, it just, was just not a good fit for me. I have friends that, and my brother was one of them, that survived the corporate, you know, the corporate well, He was world. the president of the bank, right? Yeah, CEO. Yeah, CEO of the bank, yeah. And, uh, and so he, he, I always thought I could be, if my brother could do it, I could do it. And I finally figured I'm not my brother. He, he's got a different personality than I do. He, he was actually raised a little differently than I was. You know, he came along at a different time than I did. Yeah. In that same house. In that same house. Yeah. And we, we've had a lot of conversation about it. But I, I finally had to figure out, I, I am not my brother. And for me to be a success, I've got to follow what my heart tells me to do. And my heart says, you're not supposed to be in an environment like a corporate environment. You, yeah. you're, you're limited by a corporate environment. And your best calling is to do something where you don't have a boss and yeah. where you're independent. You're self-motivated. You don't need somebody to motivate you. You need to be in a world that you can control and design and build yeah. yourself. It, isn't that a wonderful thing? It is. For me, the big deciding factor, because I was in the military for 28 years, so my salary was, you know, it was, it was depending on my rank. Right. And every guy that was my rank, every guy and gal made exactly the same. A lot of what motivated me to leave was, well, one, I, I joined at 17, and I'd been in it for 28 years. Right. I'd been away from my, my family, my kids, for a lot of time. Right. But the other thing is, I looked around the Marine Corps and went, like, every guy in here, that's my ranks making the same thing I'm making. And some of them are dirt bags and some of them are good guys, but it doesn't matter. We're all making the same money. Right. And when I retired, I went and worked for a guy, a good guy. But I just decided nobody's going to decide how much money Bruce Bright makes. Now, I may not make any, but it's going to be because I didn't go get it. That was my drive. It's still my driving force today is I want to determine how much money I make and how I make it and what I do with it. Uh, I also like the freedom of owning my own world. Right. So um, good. All right. So we've decided now. We're going to do something entrepreneurial. Right. Begin to research various businesses that I could invest in. I didn't have a lot of money to invest, but that I could I could convert over into a career. And one day I was listening to the business channel. And in the background, I heard them mention my old bank's name and uh, I turned the volume up. And the corporation where I was working was the 501st company in the S&P. It was S&P 501. There were two companies in the S&P that were merging, and I had a bunch of stock options. They weren't worth anything. My exercise price was higher than the current market value of the stock when I, when I left. But because there were two companies ahead of my old company that were merging, my company was about to go into the S&P 500. I didn't know what that meant, but as I'm watching it, they're watching the stock price, and it began to go up. 
And when a company goes in the S&P 500, it becomes more liquid. It automatically goes into mutual funds and index funds. And so automatically people have to buy it. Institutionally, you have to buy it. And so there's a demand for it, so the price goes up. Well, every time it went up, I think I made $50,000. And as I watched it, at the end of the day, it was kind of like the movie Trading Place. Have you ever seen Dan Arcoy and uh, Eddie Murphy? At the end of the day, it was like, at the start of the day, I was one person. At the end of the day, I had a whole lot more opportunity than I had at the start. I was a different person. And so it wasn't enough that I could retire, but it was enough money that I now could do things I couldn't have done earlier in the day. And so what I looked at was real estate. I decided that real estate was the absolute best way for me to create wealth, build a good income, do what I wanted to do. Now, I didn't know what to do in real estate. A lot of options for me. So I got a real, I got a real estate license. I got a real estate license not to be a real estate agent, but to get a real estate license to have access to data and to learn more about real estate. I got a builder's license uh, in case I wanted to build homes, which I really didn't want to do. But just so to get that knowledge, yeah, to learn options. about everything about, about building a home. And what I decided to do was to, to invest in residential real estate. I thought that was a good way for me to go. I can invest in houses, have rental income. And after I'd bought some rental properties, I thought, you know, long term, I'm going to make money on these. They're, they're going to appreciate. I'm going to have good cash flow. But they're not making enough money now, and I need to make money now. And so I flipped a house. I bought a house, discount, totally gutted it, renovated it, updated it. By the way, let me say this. I hired people to do that. Sure. I can't hammer a nail. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I, I had it. I had other people do the work for me. I flipped the house. And I think I made $15,000. And I thought, man, that is a lot easier than making a couple hundred dollars off of house for cash flow is to take a big hit like that. And so I just dove in to, to flip, flip the house. Uh, flipped 150 houses, made a great living at it, and, and kept building up my rental portfolio as, as time went on. With my builder's license, I built two luxury homes in Homewood. I actually figured out I could build a house if I wanted to, and I got that done. So I got that notch on my belt. So how did you build the house? Because you don't, you, you can't hammer a nail. I, I subcontracted out. Okay. Hired out. So you were the general contractor. General contractor. Hired okay. out the subs, get the work done. Then the market turned. The bubble burst. Was this an eight? Oh uh, seven, oh eight. Uh, market slowed down, and and while this was going on, I had a real estate license, and I decided. It was with another company, and I like the company. I like the brokers. Tom Murphy, he's a great guy. But I, again, I didn't want somebody over me. I didn't want to have to give part of my money to somebody else. And so I started a real estate company called Red Hills Realty. What year? 2007. 2007. In fact, if you look at when the market peaked, it was March of 2007. That's when we opened Red Hills. You couldn't have opened a real estate office at a worse time. That's than when, when I met you. Yeah. That's, that's roughly when we yeah. met. So that's when I opened Red Hills Realty. And I opened it mainly to save commissions for me, not to not to get agents. But I had a girl that had that was a good friend of ours that wanted to get a real estate license. And so she's like, we, we get a company so I can get a license with you. And so part of me starting the company was so she could have a license with me. Yeah. And so she got a license. She got a bunch of her friends to get a real estate license. And so before long, I had a bunch of real estate agents in this company. I really didn't want, but it was there and, and I could use it if I wanted to. So when the bubble burst, here's what happened to Melvin. I lost $150,000 on one house that I'd flipped, on one house that I'd built. Uh, I had a partner, so we split that cost, but it, it cost me $100, cost him $50. I was left with a huge inventory of houses that we couldn't sell. And so I had to move it into my rental portfolio, which means I had to take on a ton of debt to pay off. And so when the market crashed, 
I'm without a, a source of income because I can't no nope, I can't flip houses because nobody wants to buy any. You can't buy any. I've got a huge amount of debt now that I've just taken on because I had to convert those houses and I just had to write a big check that that kind of wiped out a good bit of my net worth. So I looked at everything I had and I thought, how am I gonna make a living now? Or what am I gonna do to get me out of this situation I'm in? And I thought, I might as well try and be a real estate agent. I've got a real estate license, I know how to be a real estate agent. I've been dealing with them for 10 years. And so I began to learn after having a license for 10 years, I started learning how to be a real estate agent. And now I'm a broker and I've got agents under me. I need to tell them what to do so they'll know what they're doing. So I got all the training I could on being, I got a coach. Uh, I got all the training I could to teach me to, how to be the best real estate agent I could be. And one of the things I learned is because we were in a market where uh, supply was high and demand was low, to sell a house required a certain skill set. You had to really dig in and learn how to sell. Yeah. So me and all my agents that at Red Hills, we learned how to sell property. We, we learned how to deal with sellers that were frustrated. We learned how to in deal this with, messed up market. We, we learned how to deal with, with falling prices and how to get uh, how, how to pa- package things the right way. You really learn how to sell when it's hard to sell. And so we learned how to sell real estate. In 2012, I went to a conference and it was a mastermind conference. And the speaker said that the real estate commission structure in America cannot sustain itself because it's different than any country in the world. And the way the rest of the world does it is different than the way America does it. And average commission, for instance, in in Great Britain is 2%. Average agent in Great Britain did 50 transactions a year. And he said this not to scare people or to to show any disrespect. This was a real estate agent conference that I was attending. And he did this to say, you better be able to separate yourself and to, and to have a unique selling proposition, or you're going to end up not being able to make a living. Only the best are going to survive in the future. Well, that never it never happened. We never have, tra- that was 10 years ago. We've never transitioned to be like Europe or Great Britain or any of the other countries that have low commission rates. We still have high commission rates. But it made me think about what is the future going to be like, and I want to be prepared for it, and I want to, I want to set myself apart. About that time, I had a bivocational pastor. It was a guy that had a job, but he was also a pastor. He didn't make enough money being a pastor. He was a pastor of a small church. He he was a young guy with a big family. And uh, somebody had said, call Melvin, he'll help you out. He needed to sell his house. He needed to relocate. And he he needed to relocate to Texas. And I went and met with him. His house was beat up, you know, well lived in. And and, and I looked at what he was going to make when he sold it and what he owed on it. And there was no way he could pay a real estate commission. There was just no way. Um, Wait, no way he could pay a commission. There's no way he could sell the house payroll site commission. And so I sat down with him and said, listen, there's there's just not enough money in this deal for you to sell your house. And he didn't want to do for sell by owner. He didn't want to take on that responsibility. And so I said, listen, I'm going to help you out. You're going to have to pay a buyer's commission. There's just no way around this. We're going to have to pay a buyer's agent commission. But I will help you with everything else and, and basically charge you 500 bucks. I'll put you on the MLS. I, you know, Come by my office, get a sign. You put the sign up. You get offers, I'll negotiate for you. I'm trying to think of the best way I could. It wouldn't take up a lot of my time and kind of let him have a little little skin in the game. And and it worked out. And he got his house sold. And I never want to do that again. And, and didn't think that that was a business model or anything like that. I was helping a guy that had a problem. Get his problem fixed. Yeah. I had another friend, and this is all kind of tying together, that was uh, early 30s. And he came to me. He was an entrepreneur. And he said, I think we ought to develop an online real estate company. And this is what my friend said. If we have real estate agents listening, I'm going to clarify this. He said, listen, people my age don't have any respect for real estate agents. We think all you do is take pictures and put stuff online. We can do that. How old is this kid? He's in his 30s. Okay. And very successful entrepreneur. 
And he said, why don't we create an online real estate company and, and, and let let people list their house online. We'll charge them a fee, and they still have to pay a buyer's agent commission. And so we designed this online real estate company, and it was designed somewhat to help people that needed the money because we still hadn't come out of the crash. This is 2012, 2013. We still haven't. We weren't in recovery yet. Yeah. Uh, housing prices were still deflated, and people still had a, no equity in their home. Uh, they were well, underwater. What was the name of this this company? This one you do the online. Whitlist. Whitlist was the name of it. Okay. So we tried Whitlist, and we sold property, and it worked fine. And the people loved us. Our clients loved us, and it worked just fine. It worked kind of the way we expected it to work with one small problem. We couldn't grow it. Nobody wanted to do it. I mean, we picked up a handful of listings, but it wasn't enough. It wasn't going to be what we thought it was going to be. So about that time, I had another younger guy about that same age approach me and say, listen, I've been watching what you've been doing, and I've got kind of a side company that I'm kind of doing something similar and what if we created a different a different model for the industry? And, and what if we created a model that can address those people that can't afford full commission, current commissions, but provides a way for us to offer a flat fee kind of service to them? But it but it's a full service flat fee, and we yeah. take care of the agent on the other side. We take care of the buyer's yeah, agent. Yeah. So the, the buyer's agent, you're not affecting. They get no, no. They're gonna get the full three percent or whatever it is. Yeah. So we spend it, and my business partner name is Brent Griffiths. And uh, Brent and I spent six months trying to design. How would we design this company? We're very fortunate. The National Association of Realtors, and they still do. I subscribe to their information. They have an incredible amount of data that they give you if you're a member for free. And it's really good. I mean, I look at it all the time. So we looked through all their information. Zillow provided us with a ton of information. We told them we're looking at offering a different alternative, and they sent us all their data. And so we, we, we spent six months looking at what sells a house. We started a meeting every day. What sells a house? And so by the time we finished our research, we knew what sold the house. We, we knew exactly what sold the house. So we designed a company that, that needed to be efficient. Our hero was Southwest Airlines. And we, we both read a book on Southwest Airlines. Called Nuts. Yeah. And, and the success of Southwest Airlines was primarily driven by the fact that they have one type of plane. And so it didn't matter where that DC-9 or whatever it was, whatever the, wherever that plane landed. 737. It, 737. It went from Miami to, to Milwaukee. It was the same plane. And everybody knew what to do, how to load it, how to unload it, how to put the beverage carts in. And so they could get a very efficient system going. They still do that today. Oh, is that right? Still? Well, they have different size 737s, but the parts are the same. Right. That's right. are the same. Wheels are the same. Brakes are the same. That's right. You know, it's, it's the same load, unload. It's just longer. Right. But they're all 737s. Right. So we, we love that model. We love what Southwest Airlines was doing. And we said, we're going to create a model. When we list your house, we're going to put it on a conveyor belt. And we're going to take you from start to finish. We're going to do it efficiently because we got to make a living doing this. And for buyer's agents, we're going to take care of them. We're going to pay them the, the standard commission rate that's out there and make sure that they're taken care of and make them have a good experience. If the buyer's agents don't have a good experience, this won't be a good company. And so we've got to make sure we're responsive to them and help them. Well, you're full service on your side. That's you're right. You're just doing it for a flat fee. That's right. Okay. That's right. So we started the company and it, it took off like gangbusters. Uh, very successful. We've sold 1,200 houses. At the this name point. of this company? List Birmingham. List Birmingham. Sold 1,200 houses. We have uh, phenomenal reviews. Uh, we go to a closing and the, you know people bring us gifts. I've had people write checks. That I feel guilty about how much money you're making, Melvin, and you're going to have to take this extra money. Well, let's talk about this for a second. Give yeah. me an example. Let's do something really round. Yeah. But give me an example of what a savings would be for the seller working with list right. as opposed to a full service or not full service, full commission broker. 
Yeah, I'm going to use uh, I'm going to use five hundred thousand dollars. Well, let me do this. Let me use four hundred fifty thousand dollars. That's our average price points. Four hundred fifty thousand dollars. So four hundred fifty thousand dollars at six percent would be twenty seven thousand dollars. Calculate got a calculator somewhere, but I think that'd be right. Okay. So it'd be twenty seven thousand dollars, and that's uh, thirteen five. What's six percent of four hundred fifty thousand? We'll run with your numbers. I think, I think it's I think it's twenty seven okay. five. And so that are twenty seven thousand. So that's thirteen five hundred that would go to the that's listing right. company, and that's thirteen five hundred that would go to the buyer's agent. Got it. Okay. Three percent on each side. Yep. On our model, that buyer's agent still gets the thirteen five. Yep. No effect. But on the listing side, we only charge thirty five hundred. So they just save ten thousand dollars. And that's what our average savings is right now. Our average seller saves ten thousand dollars. And you've done that for twelve hundred homes. Twelve hundred houses. Okay. Yes. Yeah. That's impressive. Um, and plus, we represent buyers, and so we've sold—I don't know exactly how many we've sold, but we've sold, you know, hundreds more because sure. we represent buyers as well. And so it's been a very successful company. Well, that's a big—I mean, that's a—that's—that's that's not small. It's real money. That's real money. Right. I mean, ten grand on right. a four fifty house. Right. Uh, that's a lot of cash. Yeah. So our, our target market is going to be to somebody that needs the money, and we run into that every day. They—they they don't have the equity to pay the, the traditional commissions. But it's also people that are looking for an alternative. The company was created to give the marketplace an alternative because the only alternatives when we started, now there's a lot of people doing it now. We've got a lot of, we've created a lot of competitors. But the, the incentive was, the motivation was to find people that were looking for an alternative because the alternative was for sale by owner. And the alternative, and the real estate community hated for sale by owners because you're dealing directly with the seller. Sellers don't know what they're doing. There's a lot of emotion involved. And so that was well, also a lot of legalities. Oh, yeah. When, you know, all the stuff you got to do to sell a house, just all the legal stuff. Right. Um, so the for sale by owner people, we were saying, listen, well, that's going to cost $3,500. We're going to do all this work for you. We'll negotiate for you. We'll take pictures. I mean, it's a full array of services. Your full service. Trying, full service. And so the other people that we are trying to reach would be people that are just looking for an alternative. There's a lot of professionals that feel like, the traditional commissions are out of line with 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 what they're getting in return, particularly with the escalation in home values. And so that's the people that we're trying to reach. We don't want to interfere with buyers, agents, and their relationships. And a lot of times we'll have people saying, well, my best friend is a real estate agent. So we don't interfere with your, with, with your, your relationships. you got a relationship, you go with that relationship. But if you're looking for an alternative, we'd like you to consider listing your house with us. What, help me understand the down, so you're, We've got everybody's got to remember, you're full service. Yes. You're, not, you're not offering something less right. than any other broker out there That's right. or any other realtor. So help me understand, what is the downside to working with a flat fee service? If it's a full service company, there, there, I, there's not a downside. Yeah. There's nothing for, to lose. For the, yeah, for the seller, there's no different except right. the check I'm writing. That's exactly yeah, right. It's, it's because, I mean, I know you're a broker, a realtor, you own a real estate company. It's, it's a full service gig. Right. So why would it? Why wouldn't everybody? I mean, who wants to play? That's just a three percent that you, you either pay or you don't pay. Right. Why would somebody go with a broker that charges normal fees? Right. So you know, we've spent now all going on nine years analyzing that, and, and remember, we're walking a, a delicate balance here because we don't want to offend the profession. We're very proud of being real estate agents, and we love working with real estate agents, and we think they provide a very va valuable service. And so when we talk about our model, and we, and we tell people this, if we, if we walk into a home and those people are like, yeah, I can't stand real estate, we, we stop them right there. So listen, we are real estate agents. 
And we want those agents to love us and love you and love your house. And so we're not going to do anything that, that's going to, to upset the profession or, or, or our competition. But the reasons that people don't go to us, and, it, and they're good reasons, and, and I, I see it every day. Melvin, my best friend is a real estate agent. I, I have got to, it will kill a relationship if I don't go with my best friend. Or my coworker's wife is a real estate agent, and for harmony in our company, we're going to have to choose this person. Relationships are so strong in this industry that people will pay money instead of sacrificing a relationship. Yeah, I, let me let me jump in for a second because that concept to me is so foreign. And this, so this is the way I would encourage anyone out there that's thinking about going into a deal. I'd ask you this question: When is the last time? You wrote that person a check for ten grand, or that's a if you're if you have a million dollar home, it's twenty five grand, right, or something like that. Right, I'm close. So I would just ask if if someone were to say, Mel, my best friend's real estate agent, I have got to use him. I would just ask him the question: When is the last time you just wrote him a check for ten to twenty thousand dollars? And if you did, go with him. Right. But if you didn't, it, for me, it'd be real easy. I've got you know this. I, I was in the business for a little bit, right, uh, in the title business. And I've got lots of real estate friends, lots right. of them. You know them all. Yeah. Birmingham's a small city. Yeah. And I know most realtors in almost every real estate company because of the title business. Sure. But I can tell you now, I can I can gladly tell them, hey, look, I love you, but this is real money for the Bright family. I mean, it's real cash. Right. And I'm not in the habit of writing checks if I don't have to. If I could get and not only, by the way, not only in real estate, in any and everything I do, I try to make wise decisions with my family's money. So if I were to find a mechanic shop that did oil changes, full service oil change for a third of the cost, I'd probably use that that company and, and everything else that I do. Right. I'm just, I just don't, you know, the, the whole relationship thing, if your relationship is based on you giving them that work, something's up with that relationship. Because right. I mean, it should be a relationship where you go, hey, look, I love you no matter, I mean, it's unconditional. Do the do what's right. Make the right business decision. This is normally in your world is re- residential. Right. This is a family business decision. It's about your family's money right. and how you're going to spend it. So I just for anybody out there listening, feel free to call me offline, and I'd be glad to talk you through it. But for me, it's a really easy conversation to say, "Hey, look, I love you, but I'm not in the habit of writing ten thousand dollar checks for something I can get for twenty five hundred dollars." And I still love you, but I'm going to do business. I'm going over here. I'm going to go right. over here and do business here. Right. One of the examples we give, and and we again, we're walking a tight road here. We don't want to interfere with people's relationships. We want to try and be as, as positive as we can. But one of the examples we give is, let's say you've got a $500,000 house and you've nurtured it. You, you know, you've paid the bills, you've painted it, you remodeled your kitchen, you've had your Christmases in it. You've lived there and you've got $50,000 in equity right now. If we sell your house, you have $50,000 in equity. If you go with the traditional 6%, you're going to write a check for $30,000. So $30,000, 30,000 of your 50,000 in equity is going away. It's going away. And so it's a good way to say selling a house is about the money. It's about your money, it's about your equity, it's about what you've earned. And so that's the message that we try to get out. But for the most part, we found that that a lot of people don't know we exist. And so marketing is a challenge. Talking about being an entrepreneur and one of the challenges of being an entrepreneur one of them is what's the most effective marketing that you can do. And it's a challenge for us because mm-hmm. getting your name out there. I mean, I guess we could plaster ourselves with billboards and yeah, all kinds of things. What we have found is penetrating the relationship component 
of the decision-making model for most residential homeowners is the toughest nut to crack. Well, we're going to push you out because the Bruce Wright breakdown is going to be all over Birmingham and nationwide for sure. So anybody out there that's looking for a different approach to selling a home uh, or buying a home, talk to Melvin. I mean, you know, we'll, we'll call his contact. It's Red Hills Royalty. He's easy to find. He's rare at Homewood. Uh, but, you know, I just say that the the idea, I love the $50,000. Just for me, i got to ask the question. I can tell you now, I've never written a ten dollars to $25,000 check to a friend just for the heck of it. I don't have that kind of money. And if I made 50 grand on the sale of my home, I would want to keep as much of that 50. I mean, I want to pay for, for the folks who do the work because right. it is real work. But if I've got an offering that somebody will do it for, did you say it's $2,500 flat fee? $3,500 flat fee. Okay, well, I'll just do the math real quick. $3,500 is less than ten grand. Right. I got that part down. So, and again, it goes back to making good, family business decisions. In, in in business, you would get fired. I mean, if you worked for me right. and you came to me and said, hey, Bruce, I got a really good friend that's in the fencing business and we just put a bunch of fences up around our company and I, I used him because he's my buddy, but by the way, it costs you $7,500 more. That person just lost their job. I mean, it, it, that doesn't make, for me, that doesn't make sense. I mean, I've told Bruce Jr., who's the producer of the show and his sisters more than once, I am not in the business of making bad family business decisions. You know, this is very typical. 16-year-old turns 16, daddy, I want a car. Well, they come to you and say, daddy, I want a Corvette. Right. How, how many parents out there would go do that? Now, there may be some super wealthy that would do that. I think that's a stupid re response. My response would be, look, I love you. I love you unconditionally. So me not buying you the vet doesn't mean I don't love you. It means right. daddy's making a good business decision. You're going to get a jalopy. Your first one's going to be a used car. I'm going to put you in some wheels. And I did all three of them. But it wasn't brand new cars. It was used cars that were well-maintained and ready to go. This is kind of the same thing for me. This is, in most cases, in residential real estate, this is about the family's money. And so, I mean, I know, like I told you at the beginning of the show, I use Melvin mainly, not because Melvin's good at what he does, because he really is. Melvin has got an accounting background. I mean, what I love is, is that Melvin comes with a lot of foundation, where some realtors, and I'm not hating on realtors. i got a ton of realtor friends, but you and I both know there are some that don't know a damn thing about some real estate. I had so many come into the title company and have everything screwed up. And then we fixed it. My attorneys would fix it. And then we'd move on. And then I had the Melvins come in who had everything squared away. They knew their business. They knew their trade. They spent time studying. They spent time getting the qualifications, the broker, the whatever. The, so there's a large spectrum of residential realtors out there. And I'm a, I'm a fan of realtors. I mean, I, I've got a home. I might sell it. I'm not going to buy owner because I don't want to do all the work. And it's a lot of work to be done. But I just think for me, knowing that you're full service and I get a super discount. And by the way, I guess the more my house is worth, the more discount I get. That's exactly right. Because it, the, the, the sale of my home has nothing to do. Now, let me ask this. Back in the day, I gave you a referral for a doctor. Were you, was List then? Or was that Red right? Hills. Then. That was Red Hills then. Okay, yeah. that was before yeah. the list got started. Yeah. Don't, don't, tell, don't tell Sarah. Okay. She, she, she's used to be since then. Oh, no. She's a, she's a good person and had nothing but good things to say. Good. And when I gave the recommendation, there was only one. Right. I mean, I just, there's, only, there's only one going to, and this is the guy. Yeah. And she loved you. Of course, they, they, they all do. We'll talk about that here in a minute. Okay. So now we're, we're trying not to offend your realtor friends, and you're not because you pay them full. Yes. This has nothing to do with the other side of the That's deal. That's exactly right. Yeah. The other side of the deal is traditional. Sure. You're just you're just helping out on your side of the deal. That's right. Okay. So what what happens after list gets started? You sold 
1200 you bought more more so lots more homes now what happens yeah i think we we have number one if you're familiar with the book emeth revisit no okay i'm going to recommend this book to any entrepreneur you need to read the book emeth revisited it's by peter gerber it is a phenomenal book. E-Myth? E-Myth Revisited. Okay. And, we'll, put, uh, we'll, put that, we'll put that on the show notes. E- E-Myth is just kind of its, it's nickname. So E-M-Y-T-H. Mm-hmm. Google that, Bruce, and see where we get it. And so um, make sure his name is Peter Gerber. <laughs> I know his last name is Gerber. Yeah, Michael Gerber. Michael Gerber. Okay, Gerber. We refer to him as Gerber. There you go. Okay. E-Myth Revisited. Okay. And so this is a a book that every entrepreneur should read. It is. It tells you exactly how to design and build your business, and it tells you the mistakes that every entrepreneur makes. And as of course, I've read that book before we started our business, but I can tell you, I've made nearly every mistake in that book. And the biggest mistake, some of the biggest challenges that we've got are the most challenging boss you'll ever have is yourself, yeah. and, and you'll demand sure. you'll demand more of yourself than you will anybody else. And well, wait, wait a minute. Let me, I want to qualify. That's an entrepreneur. Yes. Because there are some guys out there that are happy to sit on the couch and eat Cheetos. Right. They're not going to shut, but the, the Melvins of the world do what you're talking about. That's right. And so EMAT focuses on you will work yourself to death. You're not building a business. You, you just got a job and you've got a maniac for a boss. And so to build a business, you can't do all the work. And so EMAT is very strong in designing a company so that other people do the job and, and you don't have to do it. So you can grow. It's focused on growing your business. Your time ought to be spent on growing your business, not doing your business. Time, time on the so business. Work on your company, not in your that's company. That's exactly right. Yeah. And he's a big advocate of that. And, and also how to document your company. The challenges that we've got are, number one, we fall into that category of doing a lot of the work ourselves. And so one of the challenges that we've had is how do we separate ourselves from the business and help it to grow? It's an ongoing challenge for us. Yeah. Uh, the other challenge is how do we most effectively market? We can't market like traditional companies. We've got this this challenge of the relationship issue, getting our name out there, credibility, too good to be true. And it's a nut we haven't cracked. We've tried different things. I would say it's just an ongoing battle for us to figure out what is going to be the most effective marketing strategy for us. Well, we will start. We will start pushing you here on the Bruce Pratt breakdown. I also introduced you and the all the listeners that are listening to our podcast. They know Michael Bell because he was on, and I introduced you to Michael Bell because right. he is phenomenal. I mean, both of you guys are the top of your own world, and I'll guarantee you if y'all work together, good things will happen. So um, we'll 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 and we'll certainly keep pushing here. But so that E Myth book, you recommend that we all read that if we want to be an entrepreneur. Recommend it, yes. Okay. There's another book coming out, 1300 Saturdays. My book is at the printer. So uh, I'll make sure everybody gets a copy of that to you include. I love hearing your feedback. Sounds like you, might, you might even be in it. We'll see. Yeah. Um, good. Okay. So what's next for Melbourne? So right now you're currently running the list Birmingham. Right. And what's next for Melbourne? Our, our focus at our company is to, is to grow market share. And, and that's something that I've just totally dedicated my time to, my energy to. How do we get more people aware of our company and what we do and how do we grow it? And how do we attract agents? We've got agents that work for us that make a very good living. And how do we get more agents to come on board with us? We've we got certain expectations for our real estate agents that they've got to be people, people. They've got to have a high degree of determination that they're going to do things the right way. They've got to get along well with other real estate agents. If we ever have an agent that doesn't kind of meet our minimum criteria, they wouldn't be with us uh, very long. But uh, attracting those kind of agents is a challenge for us, and we're, we're working through that as well. 
We've got a good commission structure. They make a good living. They okay. do very well. We had an agent that came to us that was in a subdivision, and she was with another brokerage, and uh, she lived in the subdivision. And she called me one day and said, I want to I put my license with you. And I said, why do you want to do that? And she said, because you guys are selling everything in my neighborhood, and I can't sell anything. And so she came on board with us, and now she's probably one of the top agents in that neighborhood. Yeah. And she's made a good living doing it. Right. So, you know, we offer an off, uh, an opportunity for real estate agents that fit a certain mold. And we're not necessarily just looking in the real estate agent world as well. We're looking for people that are looking for a challenge and looking to do something different and yeah. be their own boss and be independent. Well, you could probably teach them the widgets of the world in real estate. What you're looking for is the right person. That's right. That brings the right characteristics and the right personality to the job. Yeah. So what would you say then? In, in, um, I'll, I'm going to have the last word because it's my podcast. Yeah, but yeah. I'll... But I'll but I, what I want to know, what would you say to a young entrepreneur that's kind of out there biting at the bit? Like, I want to get into this. I want to, I want to get after it. So what, what would be your, your guidance to that, that person? I, I recommend EMIT to be a starting point for any entrepreneur. And I read this, uh, this, you've probably heard this story before. It was an old Indian chief and he set his grandson down and his grandson said, he said to his grandson, grandson, there are two wolves in you battling for control of your life. And one is a bad wolf, and he's negative, and he's pessimistic, and uh, he, he's he's envious, and, and he's he's always going to be negative, and he's always going to look at things from a negative point of view. He's going to drag you down. The other wolf is optimistic and positive and happy and hardworking and goal-oriented. And the little boy said, well, Grandfather, which one of these is going to win? And he said, the one you feed. And so I would recommend to anybody thinking about being an entrepreneur, remember You've got to feed that good wolf, and that means affirmations. It means books that are that are going to help you grow and become who you're meant to be. But those those that's what I would recommend. Okay. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna close with a little bit of a dialogue here because I want folks to know, and I've I've said this about some other folks as well. But one, I would I would add to what Melvin said about being successful is surround yourself with people that you want to be like. So surround yourself with successful people, honest, hardworking, those sorts of folks, and you will find out that that will rub off on you. If you're young and you're just getting into it, those people are called mentors. So go find somebody that you admire, and I would recommend you buy them a cup of coffee. Ask them. There is not, I promise you, if if you're young and just getting started, there is not a senior person out there that's not willing to help you if they're a good person. So my recommendation was call them on the phone, ask for an appointment, ask them if you could buy them a cup of coffee. And at that meeting, open your conversation by saying, I would like you to mentor me. Use those words and get an obligation from the person and you'll be you'll be floored at what that person will give you. Because there's a lot of us out here right now. I'm 61. I think you may be in my boat somewhere close. So there's a lot of us out here where I would I would bend over backwards to help a hardworking young person that wants to get ahead in life. I'm, I am all about it. It's free. And if I, if I can help them, I will. So that's what, I, that's what I tell any young entrepreneur. If you're not young, you might still want a mentor. I mean, there's nothing wrong getting some mentorship. If you've not done what Melvin's done, if you've tried and it hadn't worked, you might want to listen because there's some, there's some decision-making that went on. And I'm going to recap real quick. You know, we had 10-year-old bicycle-buying entrepreneur, but that says something. You know, if you look right now at a current 10-year-old, Maybe not. Maybe they're not doing that. But it, it says a lot to me that at 10 years old, you saw what you wanted. It was a product that you your buddies had and you went and got it. It was a lot of money. 
I mean, I don't know what $35 today would be, but probably 500 bucks. I mean, I don't know. It's a lot. It's a long time ago when you're yeah. 17. From there, you didn't have any money, and so you found a way to get some, and that was the military. By the way, I joined the military at 17. My parents were both alive. They both had a sign. I remember that day. I was at college, and the Marine Corps officer, selection officer, tracked me down and said, hey, you ever thought about being an officer? Kind of the same story. I was like, no, I don't know shit from shallow. I don't, I don't know what that means. And he right. said, well, how about this? The next question, have you ever thought of being a pilot? Uh, again, shit from shallow. I don't know what the hell that means. And he walked me right through it. So Bruce Bright had a lot of good uh, mentors in the military that got me to where I'm at today. But, you know, you went to the, to the Air Force. You did your four years. Something happened and that light bulb come on. And you went from being a fat slob, got in shape, decided to get educated, figured out a way. I, I don't have any money, but I'm going to go find out how. And you find this grant that some great guy left behind and you apply and you got, oh, before that, you you went number one on the base and got promoted. And then got promoted after that again. So always at the top of the crowd and always sounds like to me, you were hungry. You were hungry for success. And what drove you was different throughout your life. Some of it was trying to be in the crowd when you were a young teenager, like I want to be like my buddies and have what they had. And it changed as you grew older. But you went out there and you found out, like, how do I get the degree? How do I get the knowledge? You got it in accounting and you jumped into an accounting firm to find out you're really smart. And you are. Academically, you're smart. And you've got this big accounting background, but it wasn't what you love. What you wanted was entrepreneurship. You just didn't know it at the time. And you actually didn't know what, but you knew it was you wanted to try some real estate stuff. So you put your, you know, you put your foot in that pond and test the waters. Uh, the next thing you know, Redhead's real, Redhead Realty's born. You get a partner and you start list. And today you're selling the crap out of homes. So let me give the summary of why I think Melvin uh, is successful. I will tell you, nobody comes on my podcast that I don't want this podcast. It's mine, right? You're here because I picked you and I picked you for a reason. Here's the reason I picked you. It is not because you're smart, although you are. It is not because you're good at selling real estate, although you are. It is because you're a good dude. You're a good man. You have the right heart. You're a great dad, great husband, great businessman. I've watched you from afar since 2007. I think that's when we met, seven or eight. That's when I retired. Yeah. And I moved up here to Birmingham. I think I met you at OLS. Yeah. Um, so, and we were friends then. We did a little coaching together. But I've watched you from afar and progressed through what you did and the way you did it. And I'm telling you, I mean, I'm telling everybody out there, there's a reason that Melvin's successful. And it is not what you think. It's not because he's smart or he knows how to sell real estate or he got his broker's license or any of that stuff. All that stuff's good. That all counts. The only reason that you're successful is you're a good dude. You're an honest man. You do a good job. You work hard. By the way, you do this too. And like I said, I know Melvin better than some, and we're, we've been friends for a long time, and I know his family. But you don't only do it at work. You do it at home. It's the same. Right. You're one man, one heart, one soul. And you, you you put as much effort into your family life and your child and your wife as you do Red Hills Realty and List Birmingham. It's one guy. So I, I want to end by saying this for those out there that's getting started or not, or if you're in the business, a business in any business, because real estate doesn't matter. I mean, doesn't matter what business you're in. If you're in a business and it's not working for you, you might take a look in the mirror. And I'm, I'm telling you, be a good person. Be kind, be honest, work hard, give more than you expect to receive. And by the way, all these things are Melvin Upchurch. This is what he does, and this is how he does it. So, and like I said, I've, I've known him for a long time. So I've, he's tested the, t the, the test of time. This is not a one-time gig. I didn't meet him yesterday. I've known Melvin 
since 2007 or 2008 when we first met. I've known him personally. I've known him professionally. I've watched him both ways. And he's just a great guy. And uh, I'm telling you that I know that's why you're successful and that's why you're going to continue to be successful. So when you when you find a mentor, guys out there, guys and gals, you might look for a mentor that knows what he's doing. But more importantly, look for a mentor that's a good person. And you you will know it because you'll feel it. When people are around Melvin, they feel comfortable. And it's because Melvin's a good dude. I mean, and I'll define that again when I, as I close here. A good dude is he's honest as the day is long. He'll give you the shirt off his back. He came from humble beginnings, but it's not humble anymore. And there's a reason. I personally think God funds what he favors and he favors you and he favors you for a reason. It's because of the way you live your life. So, Melvin, thanks so much for your time uh, coming on the Bruce Bright Breakdown. Guys, Red Hills Realty and List Birmingham, if you've got a residential need, a real estate need, call Melvin and his team and they will more than take care of you. So uh, we'll end with that. Thanks so much, my friend. I appreciate you. And I love you. Thanks for having me. I'm very humble by everything you just said. Thank awesome. you. Thank you.